Well, if you have your Bibles with you again this morning, I invite you to turn with me to the New Testament book of 2 Thessalonians, 2 Thessalonians chapter 1. If you're a guest with us today, we began a series a few weeks ago on uh, this New Testament letter. And this morning we're going to begin reading in verse number 5 of chapter 1. And I want to speak for a few minutes on this subject today. God always has the last word. Second Thessalonians chapter 1, and we'll begin reading in verse 5. <clears throat> and this is what the Word of God says. This is evidence of the righteous judgment of God that you may be considered worthy of the kingdom of God for which you are also suffering, since indeed God considers it just to repay with affliction those who afflict you and to grant relief to you who are afflicted as well as to us when the Lord Jesus is revealed from heaven with his mighty angels in flaming fire, inflicting vengeance on those who do not know God and on those who do not obey the gospel of our Lord Jesus. They will suffer the punishment of eternal destruction away from the presence of the Lord and from the glory of his might when he comes on that day to be glorified in his saints and to be marveled at among all who have believed because our testimony to you was believed. A story is told of an encounter between two farmers, one a believer and one an atheist. At harvest time, the atheist's fields were rich and overflowing with crops, while the Christian's fields produced very little. And so the atheist turned to his Christian friend and told him that it didn't pay to serve God. And the Christian replied to his atheist friend, it does pay to serve God, but you must remember that God does not always settle his accounts in October. This was a reminder that the struggling Thessalonian church needed to hear. They were plagued with discouragement over their experiences of persecution and suffering. They were plagued with deceptive false teachers, and they were plagued with disobedient church members. And this young church needed to be reminded that God does not always settle his accounts in October, but God always will have the last word. In 2 Thessalonians chapter 1 and verse 5, Paul reminds the Thessalonians that God was using suffering to accomplish his purposes in their lives. And as they continued to face their trials and testings with a growing faith and an increasing love and a steadfast hope, this was evidence that these believers in this young church were worthy of the kingdom of God. And it proved that the problems and pain that had engulfed them would not have the last word over their lives because God always has the last word. And in the remainder of this passage, Paul turns the attention of this struggling church to the second coming of the Lord Jesus Christ. This much-anticipated event is the climax of all of history. And though Jesus Christ is now in heaven, sitting at the right hand of the Father, making intercession for his people, the Bible teaches that Jesus Christ will literally, visibly, bodily return to earth and bring final judgment in all of his glory. In these verses, Paul reminds the Thessalonians and he reminds us that while many of us as God's people are afflicted, we're unjustly treated, and we experience unrelenting suffering in this life, there is coming a day when Jesus Christ will be revealed from heaven. 
and he will render perfect justice to his enemies, and he will provide everlasting relief to his people, because God will always have the last word. With all of that in mind, I want to show you three truths that Paul shows us from this passage to remind us that God always has the last word. And the first thing that I want you to see is the revealing of Christ found at the end of verse 7 and the beginning of verse 8. And this is what Paul writes. When the Lord Jesus is revealed from heaven with his mighty angels in flaming fire. Now what I want you to know this morning is that the Apostle Paul does not give us a step-by-step order of events surrounding the coming of Christ. But he does carefully give us a snapshot of what will take place when Jesus returns. If you recall, uh, several months ago when we studied the book of 1 Thessalonians, in 1 Thessalonians chapter 4, verses 13 to 18, the Apostle Paul referred to the second coming of Christ, but he referred to it in relationship to believers. And he used the word parousia, where we get our concept of rapture of the church. And it literally means Christ's presence or Christ's coming. And it's in the context of writing to believers in that passage. And he's teaching us that for believers, Christ's return is the presence of the one that they know and they have an eternal relationship with. But here in 2 Thessalonians chapter 1 and verses 7 and 8, Paul uses a different word to describe the second coming of Christ. He uses the word apocalypse, meaning a revelation or an unveiling or an uncovering. This word carries the idea of manifesting something that was previously hidden or secret. And this word is used in relationship between Christ and unbelievers. And Paul is teaching us with this word that Christ, the one who has been hidden and revealed in all of his sovereign glory, will be unveiled and every eye in the world will see him, even those who do not know him and worship him. In his first letter, in 1 Thessalonians chapter 4, verses 13 to 18, Paul described the return of the Lord in connection with the fears of Christians about the death of their loved ones. And here in 2 Thessalonians chapter 1, he describes the second coming of Christ surrounding the punishment that Christ will give to the persecutors of his people and of his church and the relief that he will give to his people. And in verse 7 and in verse 8, he gives three characteristics of the second coming of Christ. And I'm literally lifting them off the pages of your Bible. You can see them right there before you. He says, first of all, that Christ will be revealed from heaven at the end of verse 7. And the Bible tells us that at Jesus' first coming, his deity was veiled in human flesh. And in John chapter 1 and verse 10, John says that Jesus was in the world and the world was made through him and yet the world did not know Jesus because he was veiled in human flesh. But the Bible teaches us that in his second coming, there will be absolutely no mistaking the reality of who Jesus is because the Bible says in Matthew chapter 24 in verse 30 that the whole world, the whole world will see the Son of Man coming on the clouds of heaven with power and with great glory. In Acts chapter 1, after Jesus gave his final commission to his disciples, the Bible teaches that he ascended back to heaven and he was literally lifted up into the air in front of his disciples. And his disciples were awestruck. They were amazed at what they were seeing unfold before them. And they were so amazed 
by Jesus' ascension that the Bible says that angels came and told them to quit gazing into the heavens and to get busy with the commission that Christ had given them because this same Jesus whom they just saw ascend will come back in like manner. And this is how Acts chapter 1 verses 9 through 11 describes Jesus' return. And when Jesus had said these things, as they were looking on, he was lifted up, and a cloud took him out of their sight. And while they were gazing into heaven as he went, behold, two men stood by them in white robes and said, Men of Galilee, why do you stand looking into heaven? This Jesus who was taken up from you into heaven will come in the same way as you saw him go into heaven. Literally. Visibly, bodily. Jesus' revealing from heaven is not just to teach us his place of origin. It points us to his authority and his power. When Jesus is revealed from heaven at his second coming, he is coming with full glory, full power, full authority to judge the nations of the world. He will be revealed from heaven. But Paul says also that he will be revealed with his mighty angels. It literally means he will be revealed with the angels of his power. And all through the Bible, the Bible gives us a picture of God's ministering spirits angels. And they are not pictures of cherubs that we have on wallpaper in rooms and houses and hotels and other places. Angels in the Bible are pictures of power and might and strength. They are God's servants and God's messengers. And the Bible is absolutely clear that angels are not to be worshipped. Only Jesus Christ is to be worshipped. And that when Jesus Christ returns, his servants, his mighty angels will come with him. And they will gather all the nations of the world and bring them before the throne of the Lord Jesus Christ. It's described this way in Matthew chapter 25, verses 31 and 32. When the Son of Man comes in his glory and all the angels with him, then he will sit on his glorious throne and before him will be gathered all the nations and he will separate people one from another as a shepherd separates sheep from goats. He will separate the lost, those who are without Christ, and he will separate his children, the sheep, those who know him as their Savior. He will come with his mighty angels from heaven. And notice thirdly, at the beginning of verse 8, he will be revealed in flaming fire. Did you know that the Bible describes God's nature as one of fire? Listen to Hebrews chapter 12 and verse 29. Our God is a consuming fire. It is his nature. And the word fire that is used here at the beginning of verse 8 describes the fire of God's judgment. It's the same word that is used to describe Moses' encounter with God in Exodus chapter 3 in the burning bush when the bush was consumed with fire. It's the same picture that is used in Exodus chapter 19 on Mount Sinai when God gave Israel the law and the Bible says that smoke ascended on that mountain like a fire, like a furnace. But fire is not only associated with God's nature, fire is also associated with God's judgment. In Leviticus, when Nadab and Abihu, the sons of Aaron, presumed to approach God with censers of unauthorized, unholy fire, the Bible says that the fire judgment of God was poured out on Nadab and Abihu and consumed them instantly. When Elijah was dealing with the prophets of Baal and he set up his altar to worship God, the Bible says that God descended fire 
and consumed everything in that moment. Fire throughout Scripture is used as a picture of God's judgment. And listen carefully to me, friends. Paul is unmistakably clear. He is writing here about the revealing of Jesus Christ when he comes at his second coming. And he's writing to this struggling church to encourage them and give them hope in the midst of their suffering, in the midst of their pain, in the midst of what they feel is a life of injustice. And he's reminding them that justice will come. That it is not final judgment yet. And what was true for the church of Thessalonica is true for you and me. When Jesus is revealed from heaven, he will come with his mighty angels and he will come with fire. And no one will escape the scrutiny of his judgment. He will make all wrongs right in that moment. So I want to encourage you this morning and tell you that you never have to wonder, you never have to question about whether or not God is just. These verses that we're looking at this morning declare to us the justness of God. It may not be on your timetable, but it is always on His timetable because Jesus will always have the last word. You say, well, pastor, what are we to do with this kind of encouragement and this kind of warning? Well, we're to do what Peter said in 2 Peter chapter 3, verses 10 to 13. And this is what he wrote about the second coming of Jesus Christ. He says, the day of the Lord will come like a thief. And then the heavens will pass away with a roar. And the heavenly bodies will be burned up and dissolved in the earth. And the works that are done on it will be exposed. And since all these things are thus to be dissolved, listen Listen to the question, what sort of people ought you to be in lives of holiness and godliness, waiting for and hastening the coming of the day of God, because of which the heavens will be set on fire and dissolved, and the heavenly bodies will melt as they burn? But according to his promise, we are waiting for the new heavens and a new earth in which righteousness dwells. Do you know what? Did you catch it? Do you know what Peter says that we are to do with this encouragement and this warning of the second coming of Christ? We are to consider what kind of people we ought to be in living lives of godliness and holiness. And so, with that in mind, we have to ask ourselves this morning what kind of life are we living? in light of the imminent return of the Lord Jesus Christ. Can you say this morning that you're living a life of holiness and a life of godliness, that you are in pursuit of the holiness of God, you are in pursuit of being a godly man, a godly woman, a godly student? Or are you coasting? Is it a life that will be ready When Jesus Christ returns? Or is it a life that will be ashamed on that day? Are you living now how you will wish you would have lived then? That's the question. That's what this truth demands of us. That we examine the kind of life that we're living Well, Paul not only describes the revealing of Christ. Secondly, he describes the retribution of Christ. Now listen, I need you to keep your Bibles open this morning. And follow along because some of you may struggle with what I'm about to show you in the text and what you're about to read and consider. In verse 6 and in the latter part of verse 8 and verse 9, Paul describes in detail the judgment that Christ is going to bring with him for unbelievers. Look at verse 6. Since indeed God considers it just to repay with affliction those who afflict you. He considers it just to repay with affliction those who have afflicted his church. 
Then look in verses 8 and 9. He will inflict vengeance on those who do not know God and those who do not obey the gospel of our Lord Jesus Christ. Verse 9, they will suffer the punishment of eternal destruction away from the presence of the Lord and from the glory of His might. When Jesus Christ returns, He will have the last word. On that day, no one will question whether or not Jesus is just. On that day, no one will question whether or not God is soft on evil and on wickedness. On that day, no one will ask, where is God when bad things happen? On that day, the Lord Jesus Christ will bring perfect justice to bear on the world. And listen to me. It will be a deserved judgment. In verse 6, Paul makes it clear that God is just and that his justice requires that all wickedness and all forms of evil must be judged. And if God were not to judge all wickedness and all forms of evil, God could no longer be considered just. And so on that day, He will bring a deserved, just judgment for all wickedness and all evil. Paul's teaching here in verse number 6 finds its root in Exodus chapter 21 in verse 24 with the concept of an eye for an eye and a tooth for a tooth. And what Paul is teaching us is that while it may appear in our world this very morning that wrong is celebrated and that right is forgotten about and that the world is upside down and it's on its ear that this is temporary because justice and judgment and affliction is coming. That's why Paul taught the Roman Christians that in the midst of all of their suffering and their difficulty, they were not to exact vengeance on those who were hurting them. That vengeance belonged to God alone, and that they were to leave space for the vengeance of God to right all wrongs. And this is what he taught them in Romans chapter 12, verses 17 to 19. Repay no one evil for evil, but give thought to do what is honorable in the sight of all. If possible, so far as it depends on you, live peaceably with all. Beloved, never avenge yourselves, but leave it to the wrath of God. For it is written, vengeance is mine, I will repay, says the Lord. Vengeance belongs to God because God is just. And if you exact vengeance, you will mess it up. You will do it in a sinful way. But when God brings vengeance, it will be perfectly just. That's why vengeance belongs to him and not to you. In Revelation chapter 22, verses 12 to 13, listen. These are some of the final words in our Bible And listen to how the Bible describes what is coming at the return of Jesus Christ. Behold, I am coming soon, bringing my recompense with me to repay everyone for what he has done. I am the Alpha and the Omega, the first and the last, the beginning and the end. Did you catch it? When Jesus comes, he is coming to repay and deal with wickedness and evil once for all. And in 2 Thessalonians chapter 1, Paul uses the word repay. In Romans chapter 12 that I just read to you, Paul used the word repay. And in Revelation chapter 22 that I just read to you, the word repay is used again. And this word is a strong compound word that conveys full and final and complete repayment. Now, do you have your Bible open? I want you to see with your own eyes what this repayment looks like. The language that Paul uses in these verses is vivid. 
And as you begin reading in verse 6, and you read all the way to verse 9, do you know what you find? That Paul increases his language in intensity. For instance, look in verse 6. He says that he's bringing affliction on those who have afflicted his church. In verse 8, he says he's bringing vengeance. In verse 9, he says that they'll suffer punishment. And at the end of verse 9, do you know what he says? They will experience eternal destruction. Do you see the intensity in his language? And I want you to notice, with all of these words that he uses to describe this repayment, he never uses the word hope. That when Christ comes, there is no more hope for the unbeliever. They will face his just judgment. This word vengeance that he uses in verse number 8, it literally means that it issues out of justice. It's not revenge or vindictiveness. It is not a personal rage. It is righteous retribution and judgment. That God will be perfect in his repayment. Notice what else he said in verse 9. That they will suffer the punishment. It literally means they will pay the penalty. They will get what they deserve. Revelation chapter 20 and verse 10 tells us that at the final judgment, the devil will be thrown into the lake of fire and sulfur, and he will be tormented day and night there forever and ever. The devil and his demons will suffer the punishment. And then just five verses later in Revelation chapter 20 and verse 15, John says that all those whose names were not found in Christ's book of life were also thrown into the lake of fire with the devil and his demons, and there they will suffer torment day and night forever and ever and ever. Jesus, when he comes, he will bring just deserved judgment for the sin of of the world. And if you are not found in Christ on that day, there will be no more hope for you. You will spend eternity with the devil and his demons, suffering torment day and night for all eternity. It is a deserved judgment, but Paul also teaches us in this passage, it's a determined judgment. In these verses, Paul describes those who will experience this just judgment of Christ. Do you see it? Look at the end of verse 6. Those who afflict you. And then look over in verse number 8. Those who do not know God and those who do not obey the gospel of our Lord Jesus Christ. God will justly judge every person who has ever persecuted his church or afflicted his people. He will right all of those wrongs in that day. But now look carefully at verse 8. He'll not just do that. He will judge and punish those who do not know him. Now listen to me, friends. You need to listen carefully to what I'm about to tell you. Some of you have been deceived by the world's thinking, thinking that there's more than one way to heaven, there's more than one God, that you just need to be earnest and believe in something, and as long as you believe in something, you will be okay. Others of you say, oh, there cannot be a one true God. And here's what the Bible will say to every single person in this room and every single person in this world. The reason that people do not know God is not because of ignorance. It is because of wickedness. The reason that people do not know God is because in their wickedness, in their sin, in their evilness, they suppress the truth of what God says about himself. You say, that's an 
awfully strong statement, Pastor. It is a strong statement, and it's meant to confront you and to confront the worldly thinking that you have embraced and been deceived by. I'm making no bones about it. I intend to confront you this morning because the Word of God is confrontational, and it confronts us to humble us so we would receive the truth. And what you hear on the news and what you hear in the college classroom and what you hear from your friends and acquaintances about God and about eternity are not true. I want you to listen to what God says about himself and about people knowing him. In Romans chapter 1, verses 18 to 21, Paul says unmistakably that no one has an excuse for not knowing God. No one. And this is what he says. For the wrath of God is revealed from heaven against all ungodliness and unrighteousness of men who by their unrighteousness suppress the truth. Do you hear that? Why do people not know God? It's not because he's not made himself known. I'm going to show you that in a minute. He has declared His glory over the nations. It's not that He's not made Himself known. It's that they know that He exists, and in their wickedness and in their sin, they suppress the truth and they push back on the truth of what God says about Himself. That's what the Bible says. So He goes on. Listen to verse 19. For what can be known about God is plain to them because God has shown it to them. What? Oh, yes, friends. God is clear. He has made it plain to the world in his revelation. Verse 20. His invisible attributes, namely his eternal power and his divine nature, have been clearly perceived ever since the creation of the world in the things that have been made, so they are without excuse. There it is. Did you see? I told you. I told you. He eliminates every excuse that the world offers. There is no excuse when you stand before God. And do you know what Paul is teaching in this passage? It's happening right now in this room. That sunshine that's shining through these windows on your faces, making you warm. Do you know what that sunshine is testifying to you? That God made the sun. And that God set it in orbit. And that God in his sovereignty is shining his sunlight on you in this very moment, in this room, to testify to you that what you're hearing from his word is true. And that he exists. And that you have no excuse before him. All you can do is bow in humility before the sovereign God who created you. That's it. You have no excuse. Listen, listen, he goes on. For although they knew God, they did not honor him as God or give thanks to him. But they became futile in their thinking. Oh, this world thinks it's so smart that it's outsmarted God, that it's evolution and it's explosions, and you're a fool if you think of a creator. And God says, no, the world's foolish because I've made it plain. I've made it so simple. Just look out the window. I'm testifying to you that I exist and my testimony of my power and my creation and my sovereignty is leaving you without an excuse. You must bow before me. That's what he's testifying to. And you have a choice. You have a choice to believe the truth of the word of God or to believe the world. But listen, he's not finished. You thought that was hard? He's not finished. Look at the end of verse 8. He says that those who will face God's judgment are those who do not obey the gospel of the Lord Jesus Christ. What's he talking about? He's talking about obedience. It's not just enough to have mental assent to the truth of God. That mental assent and belief must translate into obedience. Paul described it this way in Acts chapter 17 to the 
the religious leaders and rulers of his day. He says, the times of ignorance God overlooked, but now he commands all people everywhere to repent because he's fixed a day on which he will judge the whole world. That's obedience. You're confronted with the truth of the word of God. You're told that Jesus says that you must confess your sins, you must repent, and you must believe in him to be saved and to be ready for his second coming. And then you're confronted with a choice. Will you obey? Will you confess? Will you believe? Will you repent? Will you obey? And if you don't obey and come to know Christ as your Savior, he will judge you justly for not loving him and not obeying him and not resting in him. It is that simple, friends. Jesus Christ demands obedience. And if you don't know Christ, the wrath of God remains on you. That's what the Bible says. The wrath of God remains on you apart from Christ. It's determined who he's going to judge. The question is, are you among that number this morning? I wish I could tell you that he was finished, but he's not. Some of you may really struggle with what he says next in verse 9. He says it's a devastating judgment. In verse 9, Paul vividly reveals the ultimate fate of those who afflict God's people, of those who do not know God, and of those who do not obey the gospel of our Lord Jesus Christ. Do you know what he says will happen to them? They will suffer eternal destruction. The word eternal means that this judgment is not temporary, it's permanent. It will last forever. And the word destruction, now I need you to listen carefully to what I'm about to teach you. People read the word destruction and they think, oh, he's just going to wipe them out and do away with them. He's going to annihilate them. That's not what this word means. It does not refer to annihilation. But do you know what it does refer to? It refers to complete and utter ruin. It does not mean that you will cease to exist. It means that you will continue to exist for all eternity, but you will lose everything that makes life worth living. It means that in eternity, you will experience forever a life of uselessness, a life of hopelessness, a life of emptiness, a life of meaninglessness, a life with no value, no worth, no accomplishment, no purpose, no goal, no hope. You will be ruined for all eternity. It's what Jesus taught in the Gospels. He taught that hell is a place of eternal ruin and a place of eternal destruction. Jesus described hell as a place of eternal fire, as a place of eternal punishment, as a place of eternal darkness, as a place of eternal pain, and as a place of eternal separation. But did you notice in verse 9 of all of the biblical descriptions of hell, what Paul describes in verse 9 is possibly the most striking. Do you see it? He says that you will be eternally separated from the presence of the Lord and from the glory of his might. That you will stand before the Lord Jesus Christ face to face to be judged and in that moment you will realize that you were wrong and your thinking about Christ was wrong and it will be too late and you will know that Christ exists and that he's real But then, for all of eternity, with the knowledge that Christ exists and Christ was real and you didn't obey him and you rejected him, you will spend all of eternity separated from Christ with the knowledge that Christ exists. And that is what will make hell, hell. You will be forever separated from the presence of Christ and his glorious strength. Now, I want you to notice in the text, Paul's emphasis in describing this eternal punishment 
It has nothing to do with what you find in hell. It has everything to do what is absence from hell. The presence of the glory of God. You will never experience the glory of God in eternity. You will experience the wrath of God and suffer the worst kind of hell imaginable. Do you know what one scholar whom I respect says about this phrase being cast away from the presence of the Lord? He says it recalls the great ironic blessing of the old covenant in Numbers chapter 6 verses 24 to 26. And this is what that blessing says. The Lord bless you and keep you. The Lord make his face to shine upon you and be gracious to you. The Lord lift up his countenance upon you and give you peace. And he says this blessing is one of the highest expressions of what any human can desire in intimate communion and understanding and delight with God. A communion that would ultimately satisfy our souls forever to look into the glorious face of God and know Him and be known by Him. This is the highest expression of love and communion and worship with God possible. And He says, it will be totally absent in hell. That instead of being embraced by God, we will be condemned by God. And that this blessing from Aaron would actually be reversed on the people who are in hell. And it would be given this. The Lord curse you and reject you. The Lord darken his face to you and withhold all grace. The Lord turn away his countenance and leave you in despair. What a tragedy. And you say, Pastor, that doesn't seem fair. That doesn't seem right. What kind of God would do something like that? Listen to me. Here's what I say to you in response to your question. You've forgotten how serious your sin and rebellion really is to a holy God. You've been coddled, you've been comforted, you've been told weak truth by weak preachers who are afraid to make you mad and afraid to reveal the truth of God's word to you, and you've bought into a lie, and you've forgotten how serious your sin is to a holy God. It is so serious, he poured his wrath on his son so he could give you grace and life and you question his justice no friends it's deserved and listen if I haven't said enough to confront you and tick you off let me say one more thing there's a real popular idea prevalent among Christians today it's called universalism and it comes straight from the devil. And it was made popular by a former so-called preacher who's now some kind of a spiritualist. I just say he's a mess. By the name of Rob Bell in his book, Love Wins. And he looks on the gracious character of God revealed in the Bible. And this is what he asserts. The belief that given enough time, everybody will turn to God and find themselves in the joy and peace of God's presence. The love of God will melt every hard heart, and even the most depraved sinners will eventually give up their resistance and turn to God. And according to Bell, God will give them a second chance in eternity. Friends, that is a lie. That is a lie. You say, how can you say that's a lie, Pastor? He might be right. Well, if he's right, then the Bible is wrong. 
Because the Bible says in Hebrews chapter 9 and verse 27 that it is appointed for man to die once and after that comes judgment. It is appointed for man to die once, not get a second chance. Die once and then comes judgment. And I want to say to you this morning, out of the loving concern as your pastor, as your friend, that there is no such thing as universalism. That there is really, literally, physically a place called hell. And if you deny the existence of hell, listen, I'm about to make a bold statement. If you deny the existence of hell, you must examine yourself as to whether or not you are really a Christian. Because you have made up your own view of God. And it is not the God of the Bible. And you need to repent and believe in Him. And I will say that to you this morning because I love you and I care about where you spend eternity. This life is real. It's not a game. Jesus is coming. And if you haven't been watching the news... Is close. Well, I've lost my place in my notes. The revealing of Christ, the retribution of Christ. Now I've got to tell you something good to finish the sermon. The rest of Christ. This is good. Look at verse 7. He'll grant relief to you who are afflicted. Look at verse 10. When he comes on that day to be glorified in his saints and to be marveled at among all who have believed... Because our testimony to you was believed. He's going to grant relief. It means to release the pressure. It means to uh, loosen the cords that have been bound so tight. It means all of your pain, all of your suffering, all of the unjust treatment that you've experienced, all of the heartache, all of the brokenness, all of the pain. Listen, he's going to relieve it. He's going to give you rest. He is going to grant you relief from every single thing that afflicts you. That, oh friends, that, that will be a good day. You think you're having a good day today? That will be a good day. That relief. And if that weren't enough, did you see what the text says in verse 10? He will glorify himself in his saints. Oh, you got to stop and think about that for a second. Don't you read that verse too fast. It doesn't say that the saints will glorify him. Do you see it? It doesn't say that. It doesn't say that the saints will glorify him. Right now, the Bible says that we are to do everything as his people for the glory of God. The Bible says that we are to shine our light among men so that they could see our good works and glorify our Father in heaven. But on that day when Jesus Christ returns and gathers his people, his people will not glorify him. He will display his glory in them. It means that we will see him face to face and we will be like him because we will see him as he is. His glory will be in us. And if you look at the language of verse 10, they're astonished by this possibility. Does God astonish you? On that day, he will. You will be awestruck with the glory of God. Samuel Rutherford was an eminent Scottish minister of the 17th century, and he was once asked, what will Christ be like when he comes? And here's the answer that he gave. All lovely. One day, by God's grace, we will gaze on that lovely face of Jesus. And in the twinkling of an eye, that loveliness will become ours in such a way that we will be lovely too. That's what that day will be like. The loveliness of Christ. You know what it reminded me of? A verse that has become one of my favorite verses especially through our study of the book of Job. 
2 Corinthians chapter 4 and verse 17. For this light, momentary affliction is preparing for us an eternal weight of glory beyond all comparison. Oh, when you take that verse and you insert it right here in 2 Thessalonians chapter 1 and verse 10, that is the eternal weight of glory. That God would be glorified in his saints on that day. And it won't even compare to what we are experiencing now. And do you notice how he ends? He ends verse 10 with the word believed. He uses it twice. He says, those who believe will experience this. And he says, Thessalonian church, you'll experience this because you believed our testimony. That's it, friends. That's the answer. It's belief in the Lord Jesus Christ. It's not mental belief that you get all the fact, facts right. It's that you believe all those things that the Bible says about Jesus. But that belief affects your heart and your life. Like your heart of pride, your heart of stone, your heart of resistance, it gets crushed. It gets broken apart. And you get a new heart. You get a heart of flesh. You get a heart that's soft, moldable by God. And you get a hope. And you get a future. But you have to believe. And your belief is resting everything that you are and everything that you have in Christ, in Christ alone. I'm resting right now, this very moment, everything that I am on this platform. And I'm believing that no matter how excited I get, the platform will hold me. And when I believe in Jesus, it means that no matter what I've done, no matter what baggage I've brought with me today, no matter what I may face in the future, my belief in him, my resting in him and what he's done for me on the cross is enough to take me to heaven. This passage of scripture demands a decision. It demands a decision from you. What will you do with Jesus? He's going to be revealed. He's coming with judgment. And he will bring relief to you if you know him. Do you know him? Let's stand for prayer.